Jerusalem Talks MD, a series of conversations organized and recorded by the University of Notre Dame with the purpose of amplifying the unique encounters that are made possible through the initiatives and presence of the university in Jerusalem and the region at large. For more information, please visit www.jerusalem.nd.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Daniel Schwanke, and I'm the executive director for the University of Notre Dame's Global Gateway here in Jerusalem. Um, obviously, as always, very excited uh, to do another uh, one of these great episodes of Jerusalem Talks ND. Before that, I wanted to say that I'm very happy to see uh, Father John Paul, the rector of the Ecumenical Institute, with us. Um, Professor Tzvi Novik is with us as well. And obviously, the two uh, cohorts of uh, students, both the uh, spring semester and the summer uh, program, are both with us tonight or this evening. Um, we're doing these uh, Jerusalem Talks in the uh, episodes uh, with the idea to amplify the encounters that are happening on this campus, uh, to share them with our colleagues and students uh, back in South Bend um, and around the world, but obviously also with our partners and friends. Uh, this evening, uh, we have uh, the opportunity to listen to an interesting conversation between our own Avrum Borg and Professor Ruth Halperin Kadari. Uh, Professor Halperin Kadari is an expert on family law and international women's rights and is the founding director of the Rachman Center for the Advancement of the Status of Women at Bar-Ilan University, where she serves as full professor. In December 2018, she completed three terms, that's 12 years, on the UN Committee on Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, during which she also served twice as the vice chair of the committee and as the first chair of the working group on inquiries. A graduate of Yale Law School, she is a renowned speaker in academic and professional forums and has published extensively in her areas of expertise. So we obviously cannot invite someone with uh, such a, a CV and a bio without uh, talking also about um, uh, what is happening today um, in, in Israel in terms of the big elephant the reform, or any other term that people are using currently. That the current Israeli government is planning in the judicial, the judicial system um, of the country. A reform or a notion that seems to be splitting the country or the Jewish part of Israel in, half, in two halves. Um, one basically claiming that a reform is needed to democratize the judicial system and have it adhere more to the conservative value systems of the presumed majority. Um, the other half is saying that uh, a, a reform like that is basically um, questioning the whole balance between the different authorities and pushing Israel towards being um, an authoritarian state. These are serious allegations for a country like Israel, a country where democracy is not just the thing you live, it's in a way also a justification. Um, a justification because many Israelis claim that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. So if that is something that is being jeopardized, then it is definitely a very, very serious allegation. Now, some would argue that Israel is not stellar in its execution of democratic values, you know, given the occupation of the West Bank and the siege on Gaza. And at the same time, others would claim that democracy is not bipolar. It's not an on-off, it's a spectrum. And if Israel is maybe not perfect on that spectrum in democracy, 
a change or a reform as it is being planned will definitely push Israel to be towards being less democratic. Something that will definitely jeopardize uh, the, the situation of the marginalized communities, amongst others also the women, um, one of the uh, specializations of our guest speaker tonight. So we're very interested to hear um, the discussion and what Professor Kadari has to say about that. But before I move, um, to give the word to Avrum, just to a couple of logistical comments um, that help. Everybody will have the opportunity to ask questions at the end of the conversation. So please start thinking about them now, and it helps to start thinking about them now, to be honest, than the last two minutes. Uh, you will have the opportunity to come here and ask these questions, um, and they will be recorded. After that, I'm saying this now because usually people just, as when this ends, they all start going out. Please stay with us. There's something to drink, something to eat. Um, this is about mingling, and we're very interested to kind of um, have um, a lot of you stay with us here as long as possible. No commitment. Nobody is, um, it has to stay here, but it's, it should be fun. All right, Avrum, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, all. Hi, Ruth. Um, since we have a previous, um, previous, uh, we know each other from other familiar circumstances, it will be Ruth with your permission. Is that okay? Um, in Israel, every decade almost since the 50s, people go out to the street. Social, economic, political, security, whatever. Why this time? What is it about this decade that hundreds of thousands of Israelis every weekend for 20 weeks, 21, 22 weeks, half a year already, go out to the street and do not show any sign of weakening? What's the story? Well, you're right. We are a society that has undergone many crises um, ever since the establishment of the State of Israel and probably even before, before that. But this time, I think, uh, well, what we are witnessing now is really unprecedented in terms of uh, the, the, the numbers. As, as you said, it's, it, it, it is up to half a million people throughout, very determined, and for more than 20 weeks now, because we feel that what is at stake is really the identity of the state of Israel as a democracy. We feel that everything that we believe in, in terms of the structure, in terms of the, um, uh, the, the, the legality of, of our existence uh, here, in terms of the very basic uh, system of governance, of government, is, is, is about not just to change, but to, 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 to be broken. We feel that recently people have started using this term of um, the contract between the, uh, the, 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 the population uh, between the, the demos and the, and the government, this contract has been broken. And uh, we are not going to, 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 let, to let that pass. Let's flesh, it up. Let's flesh it up for a second. Imagine you're a bystander, not an involved individual. 
give us, give me a description of the two titans. Who is who? Okay. Who wants what? What's going on here? So, so maybe we should, we, just to clarify a little bit, I mean, I, I spoke in perhaps a bit too abstract uh, manner. Um, uh, let's go to the very basic. Uh, the, the democracy in terms of Montesquieu and, and, and further political philosophers uh, from the, uh, since the 18th century onwards have, have, have explained that in democracy the basic tenet is to have separation of powers, right? You need to have the executive on the one hand and then the legislative branch on the other hand and the judicial branch on the third hand, three hands, um, and they must be separate. And must serve as checks and balances for each other. Even at present, this idea or ideal of separation of powers in Israel is far from perfect. Even now, there is no real separation of powers because the executive has full control I don't have time to explain how exactly this works, but I think that it's sufficient that I say, and I also speak from experience, that no legislation can pass in Israel at, by the legislator without the approval of the executive, right? So the executive have full control over the legislator. Any legislator that the executive wants to have, they can pass because they have a majority, an automatic majority within the legislator. So there is no separation of power. The executive oversees and controls the legislator. And the only branch that is at the moment separate and can have some control and serve as check and balance over the executive is the judiciary. It's the judicial branch. And this is now in danger. This is the, the, the primary um, aim of those who promote the so-called uh, legal reform. Their primary aim is to overtake the judiciary, to have the executive be in complete control over who the judiciary will be, over who the so, judges so will the be. So the bundle of, of, of laws and bills and legislation called reform, called whatever, that the government wants to bring is actually to create a situation in which all three branches are political branches, mm -hmm. which means the government, the executive, the, uh, the, the parliamentarian, and the legal law system all will be political and therefore it's one branch the political branch okay this is what the government tries to push mm -hmm. what the street tries to push back i mean you to the imperfect uh, previous situation so it's imperfect versus imperfect well that's or whose is better imperfection that, that that's a very good question i think that the resistance or the protest movement right now is at a point of questioning ourselves what is exactly our goal? Do we want the situation to go back to where we had been in January 4th? Or do we want some new contract? Perhaps we want to go back to the Declaration of Independence and uh, elevate that to a degree that it becomes quasi-constitution because we need to emphasize something that we hadn't said until now, that Israel has no constitution, right? So we, we don't have this 
basic um, uh, tenets and, and ideas and to, to which we can look up to and, and, and conduct our system uh, accordingly. And, and we, we, we need that. It's a question of whether it is feasible to get to a point of adopting a constitution uh, in, in Israel. Uh, but many think that the situation previously, as you said, is, had not been perfect, far from perfect, and we hadn't mentioned at least two other uh, big elephants in the, in the room which cause or which caused Israel's democracy to be imperfect prior to this um, reform or um, coup uh, attempt, and one is the ongoing occupation, and the second is the non-separation or the, the, the interconnection, intermingling of uh, religion and state in Israel, which uh, leads to many, to many, many uh, human rights uh, violations, uh, including uh, our other topic tonight, the situation or the, um, the, the rights of, of women. So, so let, let's see. What do you describe here is actually looks like hand wrestling between two different conservative philosophies. One is those who want to conserve the broken Israeli situation up until this government, which is November 1st of this year, and those who would like to introduce a neoconservatism, which will be more religious, more nationalistic, and economically more, more, more capitalist. So it's a struggle between these and those, and you do not see the third force in power yet that you hinted, those who say neither this world order nor that world order, we want equality. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 think, I think your description is accurate, and to be honest, I hope that the third um, power or the, the third movement that you just described will get stronger and stronger so that we can really hope for a better future and not just go back to where we had been prior to November or to January uh, 4th, uh, 2023. That was when the, declar when, when the reform was, was declared. When we march in the streets, one of the battle cries is Yariv Levin, Kanzelo Polin. Yariv Levin is the Minister of Justice. And Kanzelopolin, here it's not Poland. I mean, it rhymes, it sounds better, as we say, it sounds better in Hebrew. Yariv Levin, Kanzelopolin. So, what's wrong with Poland? So I mean, Poland so many of us uh, were born there. I mean, or our four, uh, forefathers and mothers. What's wrong with Poland? Well, Poland and Hungary serve as a warning for us Israelis who oppose the um, proposed reform slash um, overall. Um, in the sense that they are no longer considered democracies. You know, um, Freedom House, United Nations, many measurements. Uh, political science, philosophy, they're no longer democracies. They may have elections, but, um, but this is just a, a hollow democracy and not, not real democracy. They had been democracies until 
10 years ago or 15 years ago, and they underwent a very um, slow but determined process which paves the way to the camp that is now leading the um, legal um, uh, regime reform um, now planned in, in Israel, step by step. We refer to the Polish model and the Hungarian model in terms of first overtaking or taking over the judiciary and second, um, they're changing the constitution because they did have uh, constitutions, we don't have constitutions, um, take over, over the media, um, there is no free media um, any longer in Hungary or in Poland, um, and, and, and so on, we, we can proceed in uh, all the steps that had taken place uh, there. Um, and, um, and many of us, right from the beginning, started examining and, and comparing um, the, the protocols, and we see, we see the exact uh, models uh, and, and those who lead the reform here following in their footsteps, also in the sense of when they realized that their um, initial plan to do everything in, um, you know, in, 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 in within one week, or uh, I mean, this was unimaginable, when they realized that this cannot go through and the population here is, is, uh, is going to object, um, then they declared uh, a pause and starting those talks um, under the auspice of the president. But this too was actually the exact same manner in which they did the um, backsliding of democracy in, in Poland. Um, in Hungary, they managed to do it very swiftly. In Poland, they had to um, halt, but then they um, took it step by step in a much step by step in a much more gradual uh, manner, and and the resistance died down because it's really very very hard to keep um, such a such a resistance movement for so long. Let's open the windows for a second and walk walk out of the balcony into a little forest. We'll come back to the highway, okay? You speak about, I ask about Poland, you answered about Poland and Hungary. I think it was Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, who described Hungary today as a um, uh, illiberal democracy. democracy. He used Farid Zakaria, old term of 20, 25 years ago of illiberal democracy. Whatever illiberal democracy is, I will ask you, as a, devil, as a devil's advocate, what's the problem? I mean, you have it in Hungary, you have it in Poland, you have it in Turkey, you have it in half of the United States of America, okay? You have it in Germany, you have it in Italy today, you have it almost to the presidency of France. So why not Israel? Everybody can celebrate illiberal democracies but us? I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't see it as a, I don't see it as a, as a celebration. I think um, th there's something very misleading here because maybe your description, um, maybe some of the people, some of the citizens in Hungary, Poland, Turkey would um, agree with you and, uh, and many in, in, in those societies um, think that they can go on leading their uh, everyday comfortable lives, 
But when it comes to issues of um, freedom of expression, freedom of press, freedom of academia, freedom of religion, when it comes to equality to women, women's rights, to LGBTQI uh, community, um, when it comes to criticizing the government, maybe for corruption, uh, maybe for irregularities that are starting to uh, be known to the public, then they realize that they no longer live in a free society. The, 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 the very basic freedom of, 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 of speech, of religion, religious practice, or freedom from religion, and the very basic uh, equality rights within all, between all citizens, are, are gone. So that is why I say it is misleading, because we are not talking about democracy is being taken over by uh, authoritative uh, regimes in a military coup and uh, we don't see people being sent to gulags um, or just being taken away and then never seen again. That's, that's not the process that's happening, but, the, but democracies die in, in that yet, very slow yet, way. Yet stay, let's stay here for a second. Beside the fact that global trends are hitting many shores, I mean, it's not something that happens in one place and you do not see the phenomena all, all over the universe on many human phenomena. One thing is both Hungary and Poland and a few other places as well, there were protests, there were pushbacks, but eventually the people got exhausted, got used to the idea or whatever, and the pushback failed. What gives you hope that in Israel, by the end of the street, by the end of the day, the street will win over the government? Unlike Hungary, unlike Poland. We don't have a choice but to did believe they, that did we... they have in Hungary? Well, our situation is much, much more precarious, much more problematic. Hungary and Poland have the EU at their side. They can and are being sanctioned by the EU, and there is so much that they can go to in terms of, of, of extreme uh, non-democracy uh, before they are being stopped. We don't have that. We don't have, we have no safety belt around us, and we, live in an existential ongoing conflict and ongoing occupation over the West Bank. And we also live in an existential threat to our actual existence. And these, um, these three differences make our situation much, much more dangerous than where they had been when they started the process of, uh, of backsliding uh, democracies. So if we lose this battle, we may lose completely, may lose our, our state, may lose our existence, and no, we cannot, may, we we cannot afford to. We may lose the state the way we knew it. Yes, the existence of, of the state of Israel. 
Let me try another angle to your three arguments why the street in Israel has to win. The potential of winning in Israel is because of the militarization of the democracy. Okay, earlier this week there was a march in Jerusalem, or last, I don't remember, I mean there are so many of these marches. So I was walking the street next to the president's palace, and the front row were, I don't want to say elderly people because they are my age, but uh, they looked older, okay, with uh, red t-shirts, hardly walking, and it is paratroopers for democracy. And I said to myself, what are you doing here? I was a paratrooper, I'm for democracy, but I and I wear t-shirts, but not all the three together. I mean, the fact that the military argument is so presented, and the fact that so many hundreds of pilots and other special units said to the prime minister, I mean, indirectly, through the chief of staff, through the minister of defense, etc., if you go on with this non-democratic revolution, you will not have the strategic arms of Israel actually put a halt on behalf of the government. And maybe we have here a very interesting new phenomena, which is the militarization of democracy. Which will also save the democracy, you say. I don't know. Um, I put it as a question. My maybe, answer is, I'm not, maybe, I'm not no. being interviewed today. I, I agree. <laughs> we can change rules. Yeah, later. Um, I, I agree that that was the game changer. I, I agree. Um, I mean, obviously, we cannot know what would have happened if, but I'm, I'm not sure that we would be in the same place as we are today if it hadn't been for the mobilization of all these um, IDF veterans um, going to the chief of staff and, and threatening uh, by refusing to um, continue with their reserve service and, and so on and, and so forth. Um, so, so that was a game changer and um, it, could, it could be that this is the civil power, which is, it's really paradoxical to refer to these um, ex-military or veterans or, as civil power, but this or, is what's unique in Israel. unlike the Polish and the Hungarian model, it's the Turkish one, that the army every 10 years comes, comes out of the caserns and cleans the system and goes back and let democracy deteriorate for another decade. Well, we don't have such a tradition in Israel. The tradition has to begin someday. <laughs> so it's day one of the new tradition. I, I, I don't wish to go that far as you okay, suggest so now. Okay, so since you don't like this manifestation of the <laughs> Turkish model, talk to me about the Istanbul, uh, the Istanbul uh, <laughs> Mentioning, treaty. as yeah. long as we mention Turkey, exactly. so let's talk about T the Istanbul talk, Convention. Talk to us a little bit about it. Okay, so let's take that as a case study. So uh, the Istanbul Convention is the um, Council of Europe Convention on combating violence against women, gender-based violence against women, and domestic violence. And it is considered to be the gold standard in terms of um, international human rights, of what a government, what a state um, can do and has to do if it really is committed to fight 
violence against women and domestic violence. Can you give some details about information about domestic violence and against women violence in Israel? Where are we? What are so, the numbers? So we, so we, we are, we, we are, well, we have to mention that femicide in Israel, killings of women, has risen dramatically in the past several months, actually ever since this government was established. And I'm not the only one who sees connection between the rising of an ultra-nationalistic, um, um, extremist, fundamentalist um, um, government and the rising of violence against women, which its worst form is femicide. Explain the connection for a second. Stop here. Hang on. What's the <laughs> connection between being a conservative uh, right-wing something and a violent chauvinist? So, unfortunately, the worst manifestations of patriarchy are in extreme and fundamentalist interpretations wrong interpretations in my view, but interpretations of religion, and here it can be either Judaism or Islam or other forms of religions, including Christianity, and I emphasize that these are completely wrong and distortions of religions, but we see these manifestations go hand in hand when countries become more, more fundamentalists and extremists in their adoption of these versions of religions. And once again, we can mention Turkey and we can mention Poland. Um, we can mention the um, complete uh, abolition of uh, reproductive freedoms in Poland as another manifestation of this distorted interpretation of, of religion. So um, misogyny, chauvinism, patriarchy are the, some of the most blatant uh, manifestations of extreme interpretations of religions, and that is what we're witnessing now here in Israel. Let we're me be your interpreter for a second. We were that close to join the covenant, to join the treaty. What is it? It's a treaty. The convention. The convention. We were that close to join, and then all of a sudden walked in political forces and said, no, 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 no. We should explore the argument in a second, but mm -hmm. most of them came from the regions or the neighborhoods you just described as more conservative, more religious, much more observant and quite simplistic in their interpretation of the sages and the, uh, mm -hmm. and the instructions of religion and put actually a hold mm -hmm. for Israel joining the, the convention, okay? Yeah. So now Israel is in the good company of who else did not sign? So we have to explain that this is a Council of Europe convention, so first of all, it's all those countries that belong to the Council of Europe, but it is open to other countries outside Europe, and we were about to become actually the first to join, 
but the first non-European non country to join. But we have to emphasize that Turkey, which was the first to join, and that is why it is called the Istanbul Convention, it was signed in Istanbul, was the first and the only one to pull out of the convention. So here is the equivalence, once again, between Israel and Turkey. And pulling out was exactly on, on the same account of those forces in Turkey, which are the more conservative religion, religious, extremist, and fundamentalist forces, um, uh, flagging family values, ironically, but in the name of family values, pulling out of a convention which purpose is to fight domestic violence. So you can actually understand that family values in their, in their view means allowing for domestic violence, allowing for chastising the, the wife or disciplining her and in some extreme cases, getting impunity for uh, these, um, for, for these uh, uh, acts of aggression, which may also culminate in, in murder. Uh, but the same, the same rhetoric of those who pulled out from Turkey of the Istanbul Convention is the rhetoric that served these forces here in Israel that stopped the process, that halted the process of us joining the convention. And they actually put it as, uh, as, as a, in the coalition agreement. And that is so really So actually the situation mm -hmm. is that all of the sudden we have a fusion between first and second chapter of our conversation. The same forces who stand behind the, att the governmental attempt for uh, the legislative or constitutional reform are the same forces who pushed back or actually opposed Israel joining the uh, the Istanbul uh, the Istanbul con convention convention with the same value system tradition religion observance women women status structured family etc etc. Yes, and these are the same forces that are also behind numerous proposals in the coalition agreements. Some of the proposals are already on the table um, uh, of the parliament, such as to legalize um, discrimination based on religious arguments, discrimination in providing services, so that... Um, a shop owner um, may be allowed to tell a woman who walks into the store that um, he's not willing to serve her um, based on his uh, religious uh, belief or maybe even based on the religious belief of, of other customers who don't want to see women in public spaces. It's, uh, there's a proposal to allow for uh, gender segregation in public transportation, women at the back, men at the front. Um, there is a proposal to um, um, extend the jurisdiction of the rabbinical courts so that they may have jurisdiction not only in matters of uh, marriage and divorce, but um, uh, and not just rabbinical courts, any religious courts in Israel, but they will also have um, the ability 
to rule in all civil matters if the um, uh, if, if the um, sides to the dispute um, agree to uh, give them that uh, power, and there are many many other um, legislation on the way in the pipeline, all in the same direction of discrimination against women, um, taking away women's rights, far from gender equality all in the name of religion. Talk to me in numbers for a second. You have a coalition which is more or less, I mean, popular vote. Forget about how many seats they have. Popular vote is something like 50% of the population and the other 50% belongs to the non-government. This was the popular, outcome, popular vote outcome. Yes. In the element or the non-governmental uh, grouping, you have... 20% non-Jews, the, the Palestinians with Israeli idea, you have 25% of secular people, you have this, 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 and this. Along all of these, the number one to take the hit of all, the, of, all of these reforms and conservative uh, uh, new, 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 new politics are the women, which are 50% of the population. But you don't, it is not a women's struggle. You have a sticker on your computer, you'll never walk, you never walk alone. But there is a feeling that you are walking alone. Not you are root, but you women, it's not an issue here in, in the protest. Okay, so again, this is, this is very misleading because on the one hand, many of the symbols of the protests are symbols associated with women. It's the march, the handmaid's march, right? If we had a PowerPoint presentation, I would show you all these images of women walking uh, with the, um, uh, the robes, the red robes uh, taken from the um, TV show and the, the book by Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's Tale. Um, so this is a very prominent um, symbol of the protest. We have women leading the demonstrations uh, one of them, Shikma Bresler, she's a professor of physics from Weizmann Institute, and she always speaks in Tel Aviv with a flag in her right hand, uh, very much like uh, Jeanne d'Arc or the um, uh, Statute of Liberty. <laughs> um, and we also have women at the forefront opposing these uh, male chauvinists who lead the... the the coup, uh, and here I'm talking about um, President of the Supreme Court, Esther Chayut, and the Attorney General, Gali Barav Miara, extremely strong women, we call them uh, our iron ladies. But you're absolutely right that when it comes to the media, and when it so comes to- So I'm both to... misleading and right. Uh, yes. Good. <laughs> Welcome to it's, the Israeli it's, confusion. It's yes and no. It's always, it's always, you know, the usual sure. answer is it's complicated. Yeah. So when it comes to the the actual the actual struggle, when you start um, uh, looking at the at at what the uh, politicians talk about, when you go over what's at stake at the president's. Um, um, deliberations, or um, or I don't know if you recall um, Haaretz newspaper. Um, 
considered to be the left wing. Um, considered newspaper. to be the only newspaper in Israel. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Israeli equivalent of the New York Times. So they came out about two months ago with the cover of the weekly magazine uh, with very small um, uh, print of, and, and the title was, These Are the Statutes. And, and they detailed all those laws that are in the pipeline that form the judicial overhaul, the coup, the reform, none of the bills that they delineated on that cover had to do with women's rights. All those bills that I just mentioned a few minutes ago about gender-based discrimination, gender segregation, exclusion of women, rabbinical courts jurisdiction, and so on, none of them was on the cover of that newspaper, which shows that you are right in that sense that the, it's still the male leaders, the male politicians, even on our side, are just oblivious. They ignore. They ignore everything that has to do with women's rights. Let's see what we had so far. We gave a description of the landscape of the revolution and the pushback, and we mapped both conservative forces of Israel and waiting for the third, more progressive or liberal one. We, fuse, we, we, we introduce into it the, situa the particular situation of women in Israel, which will be the immediate, the immediate price to pay for all of these revolutions, though they're not that much active at the forefront with the feminist agenda, okay? And now let's move with the two, with the two rivers together, with, with, the, with, the, with the combined river. Where does it go? Assuming one side is going to win, assuming there is something. What is the best case scenario? What is the worst case scenario? Not how we get there, but okay. what is the there? So the best case scenario is that none of the core elements of the judicial overall is going to pass, meaning the appointment of judges will remain the way it is now, not be politicized, certainly not being taken over by the government, by the executive. Um, the powers of the Supreme Court um, with respect to strike down laws, to exercise judicial overview um, will remain. Um, the standing of um, attorney general and, and, and all the um, attorneys within the government will also remain, but we will be able to formulate a structure I don't I, I, I dare not say we will be able to formulate constitution because I think that the Israeli society is too polarized and too split to be able to agree on the very basic um, uh, uh, substantive elements of a liberal democracy um, such as equality. And I, here I don't mean just gender equality, I also mean 
national equality, equality between Jews and non-Jews, I simply don't believe that Israeli society will be able to agree on that, but I do believe, and that is my best um, uh, scenario, is that we will be able to agree on the laws to structure our governmental system in terms of how exactly we legislate um, laws, how exactly we legislate uh, basic laws, and, um, and, and how, um, how it is legitimate to, um, to, to have uh, um, a, 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 a change within the, the, the system, just to, to agree on the rules of the game, which at the moment are still completely unsettled in, okay, that's, in Israel. Okay, that's the best case scenario is minimal, minimal agreement about the rule of the games rather than a maximal agreement on the constitutional values. What's the worst case scenario out of this? The worst case scenario is that they will proceed with their um, reform slash coup plans and um, technically speaking, they can do that. They can do that within 24 hours because the, um, the, the, the core elements, the core bills are already um, ready to pass second and third reading um, within the parliament. And they do have the majority of and 64 then. hands. And then? <clears throat> okay, they passed the legislation. It's now in, engraved in the Book of Laws of Israel. Then what the street is doing? The street will protest in unprecedented numbers. I, 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 don't, I really don't want to imagine um, Let me help where you. it can Let me help reach you in with terms the of violence. Let me help you with the imagination you do not want to. Okay? It passes. We are all out in the street. And then five people go to the Supreme Court and appeal to the Supreme Court and say, this is unconstitutional, this is illiberal, this is this, 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 and this. And the Supreme Court sanctions, yes, this piece of legislation is not kosher. And now comes the question of the chief of staff and the commission of the police and judges at the courts and teachers at schools and soldiers at the army, whom do we listen to? To the legislator at the parliament or to the Supreme Court who actually vetoed it? It's not going to happen because the worst case scenario is one that all what we describe now will not happen in the next two or three months. It will only happen after October 23, after the current president of the Supreme Court is already stepping down with her, I think two more justices, liberal ones will step down and the Supreme Court will already change its composition. And well, we cannot go into details, but it also depends on the elections to the Bar Association and who will yeah, be the representatives of the lawyers in the committee. So the worst nomination. case scenario from you is an co ongoing conflict between the street and the legislator. Yes, and I, I, I think that uh, we will be beyond the point where the Supreme Court will dare to intervene.
That's the worst case. A stupid question. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? I describe myself as one who always prefers to be, um, um, to be happily surprised. So you can, you can confer from that that I, I tend to be pessimist. We used to ask my mom, Mom, what are you? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? And she said, what, me? Of course I'm an optimist. Today is much better than tomorrow. <laughs> Now, having said that, I'll tell, you, <laughs> I'll tell you why you are wrong, Ruth, okay? What's the difference between the optimist and the pessimist, okay? The pessimist all life long is unhappy. Then at the very last day, somebody comes to him or her and say, listen, you were wrong. All your life wrong, you were wrong, all your analysis. So he says, wow, what a wasted life. As an optimist, all life long you're happy. Every day is a new day, every day is a positive surprise. Then comes the last day and somebody tells you, hey, you were wrong. So you say, okay, for one day, no problem. <laughs> Ruth, I mean, I'm not at all sure I share your pessimism and I'm not at all sure I share your analysis of the final scenario of this stuff I have a feeling there will be a couple of surprises here some of them very political and some of them vis-a-vis the structure of the government etc and some of them very very external with involvement of forces which are not immediate Israeli forces who will not who will supply the safety net that Hungary and Poland has today in order to prevent Israel to go this way Israel as a semi-democracy is a more important to segments in the world to let it down. Uh, you're, you're right there. I did not include any of the international external forces in my analysis. And we also ignored um, another elephant in the room, which is um, our prime minister, Netanyahu's own personal interest in the continuation of Of this, this is plan. not an elephant. This is a whole zoo, but that's a different story. <laughs> Ruth, Todaraba, thank you very much. Todaraba. The floor is yours. Father JP, come over. Come over. We have a mic here. Itamam. First of all, thank you for that analysis um, and your views on all of this. Um, I think you just answered one of my questions, which was um, how much of this judicial reform is being motivated by um, the prime minister and his situation with corruption charges. But even more important, you spoke about the ramifications of the judicial reform on um, women's rights. Um, how does that, how does this reform movement impact uh, Palestinian issues? Palestinians with the 20% within Israel or in the occupied territories or both? Both. both. Thank you very much. Ruth. So... I'll, I'll start with the second question. Oh, sorry. I'll start with the, with the second, second question. And I'll relate this to the, to the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario continues 
with the view that the next elections in Israel will no longer be equal elections and will not be able to even pose as, as, as legitimate elections because what will happen is that at least one of the parties of the Arab-Israeli-Palestinian parties will be um, ousted, will not be um, allowed to run based on, purportedly, based on the law that says that if a party opposes the um, characterization of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, it is not allowed to participate in elections. So what will, I cannot say definitely, but very likely to happen is that the committee on the central committee uh, that oversees the elections will decide to disallow at least one of the Arab parties from running to uh, the parliament. This will reach the Supreme Court as it always did. I mean, it's not going to be the first time that they attempt to block Arab parties from running to the parliament. But so far, the Supreme Court had always intervened and overruled the political decision of the Central Elections Committee. But the next time that this will happen, in the worst case scenario, after the judicial overall is passed, the Supreme Court will no longer intervene and will allow this decision to stay and none of the Arab Israeli Palestinians will participate in the elections and that means that there will be no representation for 20% of the population of Israel in the parliament and that for all I think nobody would be able to argue that in that case Israel can still pose itself as a democracy. Introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm uh, Nate Goodwin-Kelly. I'm a student at the Institute. Sort of going off of uh, Father JP's question, there are about two million uh, Arabs living in Israel. I guess, sort of, what would your counter be to the argument that a room, uh, and apologies if I'm um, twisting your words, but said that a lot Not of... Not for the first time. Um, <laughs> no. Sort of preserving uh, Israeli democratic values. What is your counter to the argument that um, a, lot, a lot of the uh, Arab Israelis have sat out these protests in part because it's inadequate to the real realities, to the reality of a military occupation that Israel is imposing on Palestinians. Sort of how do you counter that there really wasn't ever sort of any notion of Israeli democracy given this occupation? I agree. I agree with that, and I think I referred to that in, in our conversation when I said that uh, at least with respect to two um, uh, basic uh, uh, elements in, in, in Israel's um, 
uh, political and, and social structure, Israel had never been a democracy. One is the ongoing occupation and uh, in the West Bank and, and the discrimination within I I the borders of, of Israel towards the 20% of uh, non-Jewish population. Um, and, and the second is the, the religion and state and its ramifications on uh, not just of women, but other violations of human rights, such as the lack of uh, civil marriages in Israel, right? There is no, there's no marriage freedom in Israel. You're, I mean, an Israeli citizen is unable to marry um, according to his or her own beliefs, and many are simply unable to marry because they are not allowed to religiously marry. I mean, intermarriage within, across religions, across religious affiliation is not possible in Israel. So there are many areas where um, Israel violates human rights, and, and in that sense, it has never been a democracy, but the most blatant um, manifestation of that is definitely with respect to its Arab citizens and to the Palestinians um, uh, living under occupation. Let, let the optimist uh, take the privilege of the moderator, okay? Um, it is right, and Ruth is right, that Israel is the only half-democracy in the Middle East. It's a very prominent half-democracy, functions for half of the people on half of the issues half of the time, better than many others, but my feeling is that the longer the struggle between the street and the authority, the street and the political system will continue, more and more people will realize that the real struggle is not just over the comfort zone that we had up until recently. And it's not about setting and resetting the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, but it is about going deeper into the basic fundamental values of the society, which is missing from the constitutional discourse. And the very basic one of them is equality. When you talk about society and equality, it is not equality for me and inequality for the rest of them. It's equality for all. Equality for all means gender-wise, means national-wise, means political-wise, means religious-wise. So the longer the struggle will continue and the more persistent or stubborn the political, um, the political I don't know how to call the people, the political chauvinism of the government will continue, more and more and more people will join the camp of equality. And this eventually will invite the Israeli, the Palestinians with Israeli idea to say, wow, maybe it's about us finally. Maybe we can join forces. Thank you, I guess that was sort of related to my follow-up. Do you think that point of view is, um, something that is held by majority, even a I'm just the moderator, just, ask her. Uh, <laughs> like, do you think a group's point of view is held by uh, many Israelis or even like a small portion, or is that just optimistic view? Well, it is the optimistic um, view, but I, I, think, I think that there is a process, and I, I, I definitely share uh, Avlum's analysis that things are changing. And uh, to give you uh, an, uh, just an example or proof of that, at the beginning of the demonstrations, the organizers were very careful not to invite Arab speakers, neither in Tel Aviv, nor in Jerusalem, nor in other places. 
slowly but surely, at least in Jerusalem, not only there are Arab speakers, but also the Jewish speakers, they do talk about the occupation and not just about the, um, the things that need to change for the Jewish majority, for, as Afroom said, in our comfort zone, but to, 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 to realize that there must be, um, now in Hebrew we say uh, root canal, um, procedure to, 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 to re-examine the, the very basic uh, structure um, at least since 67, maybe even six, since 48. I mean, that might be even too radical, but, 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 but people are talking about that and they're no longer afraid that by mentioning this, they will alienate um, the other demonstrators. I think it's not yet happening in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is the central place of demonstration. I think the, 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 that had not reached uh, um, them yet, but in other, in other um, areas in Israel, it is, it is happening. Um, and we definitely hope that this, that this continues. Thank you. Anybody else? We're done? Yeah, yeah, please. Please introduce yourself. Um, I'm Jane. I'm a student at Notre Dame uh, studying here for the summer. And you mentioned how um, Israel, Israel will be affected internally uh, as this result, as a, due to the shift to a liberal democracy. And I'm wondering how externally they will be affected. How will Israel and her global relations be affected as a result of this shift? Good. Well, that's, Thank you, Jane. It's a very interesting um, question to, to think about. Um, I think that you can... And again, it's confusing. It's really very confusing because international relations are also, uh, they're not linear and uh, countries operate uh, based on so many different interests. Some converge, some clash. So on the one hand, you do see Netanyahu's attempts, um, I think backed by the US also, to um, form relations or to advance possible relations with, um, with uh, Saudi Arabia now. And if this happens, it will be a big thing that may once again elevate Israel's uh, status within, um, within world relations, global relations. On the other hand, um, European Union is um, very much um, against what's happening in, in Israel now, and they constantly issue warnings, um, European leaders, um, the most, um, the, the, I think the only visit of Netanyahu to um, a, a so-called Western country in the past few months had been to France, and he was... Um, London. Or, 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 sorry, Both. also London and Italy. Sorry, yes, I'm, 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 I'm wrong, but that was, that was a major visit. Um, and he was reproached by, uh, by Macron. Um, and the, the, the other places where he is still very welcome 
are those countries that we mentioned before that had already undergone the backsliding process, um, such as Italy, um, and he had not been invited to the White House, uh, which is probably the, 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 the hardest um, blow so far for him and for the standing of Israel. So if this continues, I assume that um, we will, our, our, our standing within global politics will definitely get, get worse. Agreeing with Ruth, I will try to add one more dimension. There is a difference between uh, illiberal places that welcome us very much so because Israel is giving cautious, this kind of Israel gives cautious certificates of so many illiberal places and mainly places in which people are looking for legitimacy for Islamophobia because of immigrants and this and that. So, ah, let's have, let's be, let, let's have friendship with Jews and with Israel in order to hate Muslims. That's the dialectic process that happened in so many places around the world. In America, it's a little bit more complicated. The number one achievement of Netanyahu's regime of the last 20 years or so, that he succeeded to take an issue that was bipartisan consensus in America, which is Israel and Israel's safety and Israel democracy and the shared value language between the United States of America and the state of Israel, and made it not only very partisan, but very partisan with the very right-wing Tea Party element of the Republican Party. So the elections of 2024 are crucial for the position of Israel in the United States of America. Who is the president? Democrat or Republic? And if it's a, re a Republican, and if it's a Republican, who is the Republican president? So the status of Israel vis-a-vis uh, -vis America, I will say um, the jury is still out, and a lot of it is in your hands. Thank you. Thank you very much. Guys and girls, it was a pleasure having you with us. Thank you very much, Ruth. Thank you very much, all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Jerusalem Docs ND. For more information, please visit www.jerusalem.nd.edu.